Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give the voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Tonight's forum titled Busting the Myth of Israeli Democracy, hosted by Socialist Alliance and Green Left. Um, I'll be the chair for this evening. My name is Amanda. I'm a member of the Free Palestine Dandenong Action Crew. Um, I'm also a member of Free Palestine Melbourne and Socialist Alliance. Um, I would like to begin with an acknowledgement of country and then we'll do a little housekeeping. So, um, we would like to start by acknowledging the Rwandri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of the land on which we live and work. We honour their elders past, present and emerging. This land was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, um, the subject of this forum is busting the myth of Israeli democracy. In 2021, Beth Salem, Israel's largest human rights organization, published a report titled, The Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. The report explained in detail how Israel is a state in which only one section of the population, namely the Jews, live in a democracy, while the indigenous Palestinian population live as either second-class citizens or non-citizens in their own country. Now, I'm assuming that no one here actually believes that Israel is a democracy in the sense that it is a democratic state in which all of its population are treated equally under the law. And yet, it is a big lie in which apartheid is repackaged as democracy that lies at the foundation of every single defense of the genocide in the Gaza Strip and every attack on free speech by Israeli supporters around the world. In 2026, a coalition of countries, including Australia, that called itself the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, adopted a new working definition of anti-Semitism, which cited uh, claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor as an example of anti-Semitism. The state of Israel is a racist endeavor. In fact, it's impossible to understand any aspect of its war against the Palestinians without first understanding that it is a racist endeavor. And yet the Australian government, as part of the IHRA, has adopted this definition. And that is why this forum is so important. If Israel is a democracy, then every crime it commits can be justified in terms of its right to defend its people from terrorism. And every criticism of it can be labelled as anti-Semitic. If, however, it is an apartheid state upholding a regime of Jewish supremacy from the Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, then the Palestinian freedom struggle must be understood as part of a much larger global struggle against racism and settler colonialism. So, um, we are recording this forum tonight for Community Radio 3CR and Green Left. So, when the speakers are speaking, please try to keep the uh, volume to a minimum. Um, Tonight, we are going to hear from a panel of three speakers. Following their speeches, we will open the floor to questions. So please hold off on your questions until the very end. Um, one of our speakers, Meredith Lawrence, is running a little late. So we'll just go on ahead and um, hopefully she gets here in time. Okay, so um, our speakers. Tonight we have here a former Israeli Defence Force Combat Officer who has been a leader with Free Palestine Melbourne for three years. Take it away.
Is that okay? Thank you for inviting me. My name is Nachshon Amir. I'm from Israel originally. I was, I grew up as a Zionist. Um, I didn't think it was going to be a speech. I thought it's going to be more like a conversations and a conversation. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, please be friendly with me because I'm not going to be very structured, and I hope to keep myself in the time frame because I tend, my daughter knows, I tend to, to talk too long. Um, yeah, I grew up in Israel as a Zionist because every child in Israel grew, every, I'm 99.99% Jews in Israel are growing up as Zionists. I joined the army proudly to defend my, my country. I don't want to get it deep into it. You may have question later on about it, but uh, that's how I was. After many years, I turned to the 180 not percent uh, <laughs> degrees, <laughs> and I'm now um, in Free Palestine, Melbourne, supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and rights. Um, I might tell things that you already know or use terms that you I, I assume that you are familiar with and might be wrong, so fix me if, I, if you don't understand something um, that I say. Um, Israel is an apartheid state. As you, you said a lot of what I have to say anyway, but um, Israel is an apartheid state. So democracy, we think that it's country that has um, election and, and parliament and, and government and independent um, justice system is a democracy. Um, like South Africa, they had all these things, but it wasn't a democracy because it was only for white people. So the same in Israel for Jewish people. That's in general. Um, I'll start with, with description. I guess, again, most of you know, in between the river and the sea, there are roughly 15 million people living there, um, and roughly half Jewish, half non-Jewish, or Palestinians, some non-Palestinians. Um, The official Israel or the legal Israel state is not on all this area. So there's the West Bank, which is not officially Israel, and the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. But Israel control all this area. So Jews, except for the Gaza Strip, Jews are living everywhere. I mean, in the in the West Bank, there are hundreds of, th of thousands of Jews. Um, in in East Jerusalem, the same. Um, all the Jews in all these areas have full rights. So it doesn't matter if you live in Tel Aviv or in in, in somewhere in a settlement in the West Bank. They're all the same people. They're all the same same rights, same um, option to to elect or be elected to the gov to the Knesset to the Israeli. Um, Parliament. Palestinians in the same area are divided to groups, divided by the Israeli regime to groups. So in, it depends on their geographical location. They have different rights. But in, in none of these areas, they have full rights, even within Israel, the official Israel. Um, so again, 
people might say, no, this is not Israel, West Bank, but it's the, the, the same regime, the regime, one regime that controlled this whole area. So we have to, to look at it as a one unit under one regime. Um, the regime aim or goal is to keep this area with the Jewish supremacy. So that's why it's all structured like this. Um, I'll start with it with the political rights. So five, so I said like 7.5 million Palestinians are living within this area. 5.5 of them are living in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. None of these 5.5 people have political rights. So they're not participating, participating the game, the political game. They cannot be elected. They cannot elect to the government. So they have no influence on their entire life. So in democracy, you can, you can change your fate by trying to, to, to put on a, a, a party or to elect a party that represents what you want. They, have no, they don't have this opportunity. So if they think that their environmental decisions or their, their, I don't know, the, the, the public transport is not good, they can't do anything about it. Um, so that's the base, basic thing. So most of the Palestinians in this area have no, no political rights at all. Um, I'll talk, I'm not going to talk about all these areas because it's too much, and, and, uh, but I'll give examples. I'll talk about the West Bank. I'll start with it. So one can tell you that Palestinian in the West Bank has um, their own democracy because they have their own representative, which is the, the, the Palestinian Authority. Um, it's a kind of um, illusion because Israel, Israel didn't transfer a lot of, of responsibility or, or powers to the Palestinian Authority. They actually maintain all the, the, the main issues under their control. So um, the use of force or the, all their resources, like water or any other resources of the land. All the land permissions is all under Israel's hand. Um, planning of buildings. So no one can build uh, a house in the West Bank anywhere without the Israeli permission, and they don't give any permits for that. So that's why they, they, they all this house demolition because they, don't want them, they want them to suffer, so they don't let them. So they have to build because they're the family extended and you have to, to have place to live for the new members of the, or the new families. No, they don't get it, so, but they build without, without permission and then they ruin it time and time and time again. That, you see it all the time. Um, that's an example. Um, even the population registry is under Israel. So the, the Palestinian Authority has some powers that Israel transferred, and, and even these one are control on top from Israel. So if they want to, to ruin it, they do it. Uh, they, actually, they are contractor of Israel to, to make Israel less involved in things that they won't want to be involved. But Israel is on top. The Israeli regime is on top in every aspect of life. Um, I was, as a combat officer, I was there in all these, not all of them, but a lot of villages or towns in the West Bank, like Kalkilia, Tulkarun, Ramallah, Jenin, Hebron, 
Nablus or and many other little villages that you don't even know their names. That was in the first Intifada, so it was before the Oslo Accords. But I, as a young officer, could do whatever I wanted there. So I, not, not whatever I wanted, but I was like a sheriff of the village or the area I was in. I could stop any car in the middle of the, in the uh, village and tell the, the driver, get out. You see the, the, the Palestinian flag on the pole there? Get it down. The, how, how am I going to do it? I don't mind. You do it. So this guy could be like a nurse in the hospital and he's on the way to work. I don't mind. And no one controlled me. And no one could, told, could tell me that I can't do it. I could put like a checkpoint in the middle of the village of the town whenever I wanted to stop all the cars. And they all waited for two hours because I decided this. They're all gone everywhere to the day-to-day -day things. And this is, that was my power. I, I would go in the middle of the night in the village, like two o'clock in the night, knock on doors, like roughly, and open the door because I saw uh, uh, something written on the wall outside the house, which I didn't even understand because it was Arabic, and I could tell the person inside, bring uh, white color and clean it or, or paint it because that's what I want. So it, all, it was all to harass them, to keep them on their knees, and to control them. So they won't even think about resistance. Because the, what's the point to go in the middle of village that no, no settler or Israeli go through? What, what, why would I get into this village at all? Just to smash them. But that's, this is just the, the terrible aspects of this. But it has nothing to do with democracy, except for they didn't have any rights. They couldn't, they couldn't complain on anything. So my, I, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I tried to keep my soldiers, uh, restrain their, their, their violence, or, or don't do anything if, with force that you don't need. But I could see many things, many very violent things, but they couldn't do anything. So if the police in Melbourne uh, will hit you with, with unnecessary power, you can complain. The, there's some authority or, or um, power to, 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 to check if it's, it's correct and we, they can punish the, the, or do something about it. Not in the West Bank. Um, so this is day-to-day -day life. And I was 21, I could do, I could do it. And, and, if, and this is what, just what I could do. But the, the checkpoints all around there was day-to-day -day normal thing, and they couldn't move from place to place. So, it, that, so the, the freedom of movement was restricted. And on the same time, there's settlers around me that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do the same thing to these people. One more example, sorry. We would take, we go to a house and take the house or one level of the house and make it like a, a, a military point for us because it was like high pond and good, good view of the village. Yeah, you get out of this, of this house, which is yours. It's ours now. This is our, our, our army base at the moment. No one can do it in Tel Aviv or anywhere else or in Melbourne. Um, yeah, so this is a separation system for Jews, except for, for, the, for violating the basic human rights of these people, not, not just the civil rights of, of election, but basic rights of, of privacy or, 
the right to, to even education or work, it was different between Jews and, and, and Palestinians in the same area. So if they done something wrong, they would go to military, military court, whereas Israeli go to regular Israeli courts for every violation of the law. So it's all separate um, systems. And there's more example that I'm not repeat now, but um, I'm elaborate now. Um, this is the best West Bank. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about Gaza. It's the worst area. But you know what's going on there now on all the last few years. I'm going to talk about it within Israel, within the 48 borders, which is the more, I, I'd say, comfortable place for Palestinians. The three minutes? All right. It will be quick. Um, Palestinians in Israel are citizens, so they can vote. They can be elected to almost without um, limit to the, to the government. But still, um, they don't have the, the same right with, like Jews, because there are there a are number of laws that discriminate them. I'll give some examples. And there are, there are laws that discriminate, discriminate them officially, and there are practices within the Israeli day-to-day -day life which I might be, I might have time to to, to tell about. Um, I'll start with 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 just uh, a few examples. There's a Nakba law. Do you know what it is? So there's uh, the Palestinians are, are not allowed to commemorate the Nakba. This is their catastrophe, but they cannot have a, a, a ceremony or 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 a, or an official event to commemorate the Nakba. So we can have. We, the Jewish people, can have their, their Holocaust Day and two Holocaust Day, and we commemorate the ruin of, of, our, of our holy temple 2,000 years ago. But the, the Palestinians are not allowed to, to mourn the, the destruction of their villages or the death of their families 75 years ago. That's by law. So it, that's a discrimination. Um, are this law... I don't know if you're familiar with um, absentee's property law. So that's the law that Israel put on on the early 50s so they can steal all the lands from Palestinians. So they, the law says um, every Palestinian that, that were not in his house during the time of the war, we can, t we can take his property to the Israeli, to the Israeli um, um, government. So that's how b b in the end of... 47, 90% of the lands of the Israel of Palestine were privately um, um, owned by Palestinians, and that's how Israel grabbed all these lands and took it, stole it from them. Done? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Nakshon. Our second speaker for the evening will be May Shaif, a Palestinian who has lived under Israeli occupation in the West Bank. She's an executive member of the Palestinian Communities Association and a leader within Free Palestine Melbourne. 
Thank you, everyone. I will preface this by saying that I thank you for inviting me here. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, which we meet today, and acknowledge their land in which um, was never ceded. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I will raise my voice for those of you who can't hear me. <laughs> for I guess for some of you who come to the protest, you're very well aware that I can project. <laughs> I, sent, I tend to have two tones of voice, a softly spoken voice or a ridiculously loud voice. I don't have an in-between. Um, for those of people who tend to meet me afterwards, they're quite shocked by how softly spoken I am. <laughs> but there is something about holding a microphone, right? Um, but yes, uh, thank you for inviting me to come out here to speak. I think it's really important um, coming out of our Invasion Day protest that we had in recognising Indigenous people here in Australia and the fact that they were dispossessed from their homes, their land, um, living under settler colonial rule and really have experienced... De I would say centuries now um, of settler colonialism um, and the denial of their heritage and connection to land because that's what that has been. It's a denial of an identity that somehow we've suddenly in modern society started to accept because it seems to be really cool and woke. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes it's quite devoid of meaningful engagement. And I think as a Palestinian, I quite really resonate with that and, and understand it because um, <clears throat> I am what uh, Nasser Mashmi once termed me as a white passing Arab. Um, <laughs> I have green eyes, fair hair, well, fair for the Middle East, not so fair for white people, um, but fair skin and uh, don't have an accent when I speak um, and can sort of blend within white Australia very quickly and very easily. Um, however, I'm not um, white. I am Palestinian. I was born in Palestine. I have uh, ancestry that goes back over 4,000 years, which I can trace, interestingly enough. And for those people who seem to be confounded by the Palestine question, I have family that are Jewish, Muslim and Christian, and Druze, actually. Um, and so when we talk about identity in Palestine, what does that really mean? Um, and I think what we have been able to show within uh, the Palestine movement is that it's a human rights cause. It's a cause that transcends all types of boundaries um, and it's a cause that is built on settler colonialism, disposition of land, the oppression of indigenous oppression and domination of indigenous people um, and the denial of their very identity. Um, and I think it's something that's really important to talk about identity because for Palestinians, um, talking about your identity is actually a form of resistance. Um, Israel has a long history of, you know, uh, as, as settler colonial states do, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land was a very famous term. Um, but uh, also we were termed as terra nullius. Uh, there was a denial that we were evenly ethnically cleansed out of our lands and homes. Um, there's even a denial that we actually even exist as an identity. We're just the Arab hordes that are causing problems. Um, and that seems to be a very lived experience for Palestinians, um, our very uh, denial of identity. And that has seen, as um, has shown with, um, Nachshon has mentioned, you know, the making the criminalisation of us being able to carry our flags, practice our national um, culture and practices, um, the destruction of our lands and connection to land, which is something we hold very closely like our Indigenous brothers and sisters do. Um, and so 
yes, I'm going on a little bit of a rant, but um, for Palestinians, it's a very visceral thing. Um, and we have quite a lot of us who have been denied the ability to go back and visit our ancestral homes and lands um, or visit family. Um, I've been quite lucky because, and I term it lucky because I was born in Palestine. Um, I've lived in Palestine and I've had experiences that um, have shaped who I am um, and my view on the world. And um, it's interesting for me because um, I have a very unique upbringing because I went back to Palestine when I was six years old as a child and I had the relative joy of living in Australia and having a very comfortable childhood. But I was always very cognizant of the fact that I was Palestinian. I grew up in a household um, that talked about my Palestinian heritage, that talked about, that was very much so connected with its Palestinian identity. Um, this was during the First Intifada. Um, I had countless family members who were murdered um, during the First Intifada. I had um, two uncles, uh, one shot in the leg and thrown in prison for three years and still has the bullet in his leg. Another one, um, cousin who died through the broken bones policy during the uh, First Intifada, where if they got you, they'd break your bones and leave you naked and stripped in the middle of the street. And if anyone helped you, they'd get sniper shot. Um, which actually happened to my uncle. He was trying to help a friend who had been affected by the broken bones policy and he got shot by a sniper and he was very, very lucky where it just missed his heart um, and he went into hiding for about two years um, in, the, in the mountains, which apparently could do. Um, and, you know, I have heritage of, say, my grandma who was actually very, very rebellious um, and who was helping the resistant movement at the time by hiding those young men in their lands, um, which would have been very, very dangerous. She could have been easily killed and the family would have been arrested. Um, during that period, uh, my grandfather was a political prisoner. Um, he was kept in prison for 14 years. For um, He was a school principal and a writer and a poet. Um, and he was accused of inciting resistance against the Israeli state. So he spent 14 years in prison, in which case when he got too sick to remain in prison, they just swapped him around with my uncle. And so my uncle served out his sentence in his place. I was very lucky, though, in 94 to go back. He was released during the Oslo Accords when they came through in some tram release programs that were allowed for some Palestinians. He was one of them. I was able to see my grandfather before he passed away. So I feel quite fortunate actually that I got to meet him because he was quite a cracker of a man and he only spoke in Fusha um, and assumed that a six-year-old would understand him. Um, it felt like I was listening to Shakespearean English but um, yeah. Um, so it's interesting for us Palestinians because we come from a heritage um, where we have generational trauma and lived experiences. Um, so I'm just gonna quickly bring up, because I think what's very interesting is that for Palestinians, when we talk about settler colonies and when we talk about apartheid, um, we've been living it for decades. But for the world has seems to have finally caught up to the narrative. Um, thank you, Amnesty International, for releasing your expose and have found Israel uh, committing crimes against humanity. I can tell you that we kind of knew that already. Um, <laughs> definitely lived through it. Um, and it, it is interesting to start to see that the denial of the West 
of that narrative and slowly it's creeping into mainstream media. But they really don't like to use the word, do they? They really try to deny the fact that Israel is an apartheid regime that it's some form of democracy is a lie. Um, it, you cannot have a democracy for it's a democracy for some and none for others. And so it really, you know, challenges that notion. Um, but there is something that I found really interesting that Nachshon spoke about, which is the power that he had as a soldier. Um, because I actually happened to be there. I went back as well. I lived and worked in the West Bank. And I happened to be there during the Second Intifada when it broke out. Um, and very a lot of young men that I knew and family members were killed in that pro, in that time, but there is something that stuck with me, um, and I'll never forget it. And I was going through a checkpoint. Um, I had an Australian passport at this time, which is very lovely. It gives you lots of rights that other Palestinians don't have. Um, and as I was walking, going through a checkpoint, I met um, a very excited Jewish soldier. Um, he was 18 years old. He just started serving in the West Bank. He was um, in a checkpoint between, I think, Kolkili. Um, and I saw eight men laying on the side of the road, their hands behind their back. They looked like they'd been there for hours. Um, and when he saw me and he saw my passport, he said, wow, Australia, that's amazing. And then he goes, oh, you know what? This is just a game to me. I'm just having some fun. And the concept that he could line up eight men and keep them for hours with their arms behind, tied behind their back as they lay on their stomachs, obviously on blistering heat. Like that was a game to him, it was fun. Really brought home to me the level of dehumanization that Palestinians experience and my family experience. Because I think it comes part and parcel with the Israeli state and the Zionist agenda. It's an ethno-supremacist um, agenda. And it is built on the idea that Palestinians are subhuman. You have to dehumanise us as a population, as a people, to be able to justify the type of crimes that you commit, to also be able to justify um, treating us as if we don't matter, we don't, our lives don't hold any purpose, that you can subjugate and dominate us and not look at us as if you are human beings with you know, aspirations as you. Because you have to look at us as something less than. Otherwise, how can you have the moral conscience to do that to another human being? And the Israeli state has been very good in pushing that propaganda, but creating a system of separation. Um, and they've done that before, you know, the apartheid separation wall. They definitely have been doing it well before Amnesty International termed it committing crimes against humanity um, and an apartheid regime in, in 2021. They've been doing it systematically for decades. They've been doing it for 75 years. And what we have seen, though, is that every generation has become even more brutal and more violent. Um, but I think what we also have seen is that the rhetoric that they use, the Israeli state and their ministers and their policies that they use in-house is now being heard to the rest of the world. And I think it's because it's got to a point where it's so normalised within their political establishment. We have obviously a very far-right fascist um, government in Israel at the moment. And so they're, ab they're able to say the things they've been saying in the Knesset but out into the world and not have felt the need to hide that and pretend otherwise and so I think for those of us in the western world and I don't mean governments I mean individuals because uh, I think our western governments have shown very very clearly they don't stand on human by human rights um, 
American imperialism and all that, but um, they've got shown very clearly us who believe in democracy and believe in equality and believe the sanctity of human life and preservation cannot hear statements like these are human animals and we must, or, you know, two shots, one kill, kill, kill a mother, kill a baby, or um, these are snakes that must be eradicated um, and not go question it and go, hang on a minute, this rhetoric is insane. Um, but Israel has used this language, and it's not new, and they've used it for generations. And I think, though, the Western world individuals are waking up to it, not our imperialist fathers, such as the American Empire or Australia's aims. Um, we've been very quick to, uh, uh, I think, strip funding from ANWA based on unsolicited campaigns. But I will say, yes, I did want to say that because that really pissed off a lot of people. Anyone who believes in human rights would be quite rightly pissed off. And if anyone who'd like to jump on the campaign, there's a petition and funding going around for that. Um, but I, I have rambled on. Um, but there are key ways in which Israel um, dispossesses Palestinians of their lands and rights. Um, and as the, uh, the apartheid convention has shown, they do it through fragmentation into different zones of control, zones A, B and C. I happen to be born in zone uh, B, uh, which means I definitely have more rights within Australian citizenship. Um, but I also they've been able to dispossess. Another area is a dispossession of land and property. Um, also disposition of um, identity. So I happen to have had my Palestinian ID stripped off me when I was 17 um, for no good reason. Uh, I only found out afterwards that it was stripped off me because someone at the border decided that I shouldn't have a Palestinian ID anymore um, and I'm quite pissed off about that. Um, but also through segregation, obviously through laws that we've talked about and actually talked on, but through creating enclaves where Palestinians cannot access, um, obviously the illegal settlements that are being built, which deny Palestinian access to it, um, but deprivation of economic and social rights, which is, you know, we talked about earlier where a Palestinian child is not deemed a child after the age of 12. They are tried under Israeli military law and are subject to quite a lot of violent tactics, including torture, but also indiscriminate detention. There are every facet of Palestinian lives that are that is touched and affected by Israeli control, whether it's in the West Bank, in 48, or in Gaza, which what we're seeing right now, which is wholesale genocide. Um, and I think what's really important is that we are recognising that now here in our communities and we're actually not being silent and we're raising actions all around the world and we're finding global solidarity. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Our third and final speaker for the evening is Meredith Lawrence. Meredith is a descendant of the, from the Caucasus Mountains in what is modern day Ukraine. She is a daughter of a Holocaust survivor who would later fight in the Haganah to establish the state of Israel. She joined the Socialist Youth Alliance in 1973 and today is a member of Socialist Alliance. Thank you, Meredith. Yes, look, I'm the daughter of uh, Holocaust survivors from the Carpathian Mountains and um, after the war, they, you know, were smuggled into Palestine where my uncle fought in the Haganah, my father fought in the Palmach, which was a specialist unit, mostly fighting the British. Um, anyway, in 1973, I joined Socialist Youth Alliance, so I'm forgetting my names, and I was doing British history. And we'd always grown up in the belief that, you know, our 
our Holocaust survivor families who went to fight were heroes. You know, I remember the film Exodus, I must have been only about three or four, and it was all about all the glorious, um, and in fact, Zim ships who were smuggling people into Palestine to fight for the formation of Israel, and they were heroes. Anyway, in about 1973, and of course, the Palestinians just happened to wander off, you know, off their lands. Um, and uh, was it the Arab League? You know, told them they had to leave. So no, there was no violence, nothing. They just, strangely, they just left and left it to the Zionists. Anyway, 1973, I actually learned about what had actually happened and um, Right in the middle of the 1973 war with Egypt, I said, I support Palestine. And my cousin Dorrit in Israel was doing her national service and it just was like throwing a bomb, really, at my family. And my father just screamed at me for about six months and I just screamed back. Anyway, so that's kind of how I think I've come to be quite passionate about Palestine because in many ways I feel like I've got a family connection to the genocide and dispossession. Um, so, hi, oh, I should have said this first. Sorry, hi everyone and thanks for inviting me to the forum. Um, I want to recognise um, and respectfully acknowledge that we're meeting on the stolen lands of the Woiwurrung Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded and First Nations people remain strong in their connection to country and culture. I applaud their ongoing resistance and resilience against continuing colonisation. So I'm really putting a socialist perspective, I suppose, on Palestine-Israel. Um, and it seems to me the similarities in the experience of colonisation amongst Palestinians, First Nations, Australians and other peoples of the global south are striking in the similarities. In order, as May was saying, in order to get away with the murder, dispossession, theft of resources, oppression, exploitation and enslavement of the peoples the West colonises, we dehumanise them. You know, we make them the other, less than us, unworthy of their land or their wealth, uncivilised, you know, historically in need of saving, like we had the Christians wandering in to save everybody. Um, sorry, my computer's playing funny buggers here. It's gone away. Um, um, and then, yes, in need of saving by the white enlightened coloniser. Um, then, of course, when people resist colonisation and genocide and oppression, we call them terrorists and, and we call ourselves, particularly in Israel, with the history of persecution, um, the persecuted, and that's how we justify our continued violence and oppression, and particularly in terms of Israel and Zionism, the history of persecution within Western Europe also means, I think, that as imperialists, um, we actually project onto Palestinians the guilt we feel about, um, you know, the persecution of Jews in Western Europe for a thousand years. And it's interesting because um, I work quite closely with Muslim communities um, 
on the Palestine issue in the Muslim communities where I live. And as they always say, Jews were actually saved from Western persecution by the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, historically there's no enmity. And in fact, really until the British got involved, there was Jews and Palestinians and Druze and Bedouin lived together in peace. Anyway, all right. So I think that this pattern of how we dehumanise people is, of course, you know, no, nowhere more exemplified than in Palestine, where the West has been very open in its objective of eradicating Palestine and Palestinians since 1917 and the Balfour Declaration. Um, you know, in 1918, after the First World War, well, in 1922, the League of Nations, which had been formed after the First World War, gave Britain the mandate for Palestine with the expressed objective of creating a Jewish state. Anyway, um, as with Australia, the lie was that it was an empty land and in Zionist propaganda it became known as a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, Palestine was, and I think that this is really behind a lot of um, American support of Israel, it, cont it is, uh, you know, that's why the British went in in 1922, but it was, and it continues to be for the American empire with its allies, um, seen as strategically important to Western imperialist geopolitical interests, American, sorry, I have to say US political interests, um, and, and, you know, US allies, and initially by the British and currently by the US. Um, it's also important for control of trading routes um, and for control of oil and mineral resources in the Middle East. So it's, it serves a really important purpose for the US and, and its allies in the global north to continue to control or to... To have Israel there as its representative in the Middle East, um, while the propaganda at the time was that Palestine was another terra nullius, in truth, there was a clear recognition right from the beginning that Palestine was a settled state. Um, the Zionists were open about the need to displace the Palestinians in order to create a secular Jewish state and the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous Palestinian population was always intended. Vladimir Jabotinsky, one of the founders of the Zionist movement, wrote in 1923, quote, Zionism is a colonising adventure and therefore it stands or falls by the question of armed force. It is important to build, it is important to speak Hebrew, but unfortunately it is even more important to be able to shoot or else I'm through with playing at colonisation. So right from the very beginning, even though they talked about a terra nullius, they knew exactly what, you know, that they were going to have to displace the Palestinian population. And in fact, there was talk about settling the Palestinian population in places like Paraguay. Um, which I find very interesting, this notion as an imperialist that I can just wander into your country and then shift you somewhere else completely. It's just, you know, this whole power crazy thing is just extraordinary, really. So given this basis... Oops, sorry, my computer keeps popping up other screens. Given this basis, 75 years of persecution, genocide and displacement since the petition in 1948, the massive investment in Israel 
military investment in Israel, particularly from the US, um, as well as Israeli, the desire for expansionism, um, it's not really surprising that Palestine, Israel is where it is currently, an extreme right-wing government moving towards fascism. Um, quoting Al Jazeera there. Intensifying, currently it's intensifying its genocidal action in Gaza, but also covertly or more covertly in the West Bank um, in order to continue its illegal settlement of Palestinian territories. And it's certainly fighting tooth and nail to prevent any possibility of a viable Palestinian state, much less the possibility of a united state in which Palestinians have equal civil or human rights. Part of the propaganda of Israel as a legitimate state is the myth that it is a liberal democracy. Israel promotes itself with the support of the global north, the US, its allies, etc., as the only truly liberal democratic state in the Middle East, a bastion of civilization among the barbarians, like you, Jordan. Sorry. While the founding documents of the State of Israel describe the state as a Jewish and democratic state, note they were separate. The emphasis historically has been on the rights of the Jewish majority rather than the population as a whole. There are many ways in which Palestinian, and I'm only really talking about Palestinian Israelis here because I suppose I'm trying to put it into a context of democracy within Israel. I mean, people in the occupied territories might be the subjects of the state of Israel, the Israeli government, but they're not citizens, so they have no rights um, to, they've got no, I mean, they have no human rights. They have no rights in terms of how Israel operates, um, if you could, which I wouldn't call it a democracy. Um, and so anyway, there are many ways in which Palestinian Israelis do not have full citizenship rights. Until 1966, Palestinian Israelis lived under martial law, so they had no rights. And after martial law was lifted in 1966, they have not enjoyed equal rights with Israeli citizens. Um, like I said, while Palestinians in the occupied territories are the subjects of the State of Israel, they are not citizens. I've just listed ways in which Palestinian Israelis cannot exercise full censorship rights. And it's really interesting here when you compare it with other apartheid states like, for instance, South Africa. And in many ways, it's like it's a copy book that they're using um, that comes from the South African apartheid. Jews and Muslims are not allowed to marry in Israel. I mean, and you just think immediately, I go straight to South Africa where, you know, coloureds or blacks were not allowed to marry whites. Um, they can be forcibly transferred from one place to another. Um, they are subject to administrative detention. So, oh, sorry, I'll just whip through this. Torture, unlawful killings, chronic discriminatory underinvestment in Palestinian Israeli communities widespread attacks against Palestinian Israeli communities designed to maintain the system of oppression and domination, unlawful killings of Palestinian Israeli protest protesters. Between 2018 and the end of 2019, Israeli forces had killed 214 Israeli-Palestinian civilians protesting for the right of return, including 46 children. In 2018, discrimination against Palestinian Israelis was written into the Constitution when Israel 
was enshrined in the Constitution as the exclusive, quote, nation state of the Jewish people. This law also promotes the building of Jewish settlements on occupied territory and downgrades the status of Arabic as an official language. So it's not even neglectful, it's, it's active, you know, oppression. Palestinians are effectively blocked from leasing on 80% of Israeli land as a result of discriminatory laws on land allocation, planning and zoning. So since 1948, Israel has had um, a policy, I suppose, of designating large areas as nature reserve or military firing zones in order to Judaize South Israel. Um, Settling targets for increasing the Jewish population, this has had devastating consequences for the tens of thousands of Palestinian Bedouins who live in um, the Negev, Nahab um, region in the south of Israel. 35 Bedouin villages, home to about 68,000 people, sorry, um, are currently unrecognised by Israel which means that they're cut off from the national electricity and water supply and targeted for repeated demolitions. As the villages have no official status, their residents also face restrictions from the healthcare and education systems. These conditions have coerced many into leaving their homes and villages in what amounts to a forcible transfer. Decades of deliberately unequal treatment of Palestinian citizens of Israel have left them economically disadvantaged in comparison to Jewish Israelis. This is exacerbated by blatantly discriminatory allocation of state resources. A recent example is the government's COVID-19 recovery package of which just 1.7% was given to Palestinian local authorities. I'm quoting Amnesty here. So I think really the reality is as socialists, sorry, I have to stop is that there's no way that we can see Israeli or the Zionism as it is in Israel with any notion of a democratic state. And it's really just more myth-making. Um, really, it's just a big lie, you know, which is used to try and, and justify support or to try and, and, you know, build support for Israel across the world. Um, but, you know, it, it is just an apartheid state. And as I said, they could have actually, which they probably did, take the entire kind of model of apartheid from South Africa. <laughs> is that my uncle set up the first um, engineering company in Israel and he worked a lot for the military. And I remember in the 1970s, um, which was during South African apartheid, he was often... Um, sent to allies of Israel to advise their military. And they lived for years in South Africa where he was advising the Air Force. So clearly those close connections, you know, I'm going, <laughs> had an impact. Thank you, Meredith. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. 
You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.